in the middle of his ministry, Jesus sits down and asks his disciples a very important question. Who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples are very quick on the draw to answer on behalf of the crowd. Maybe Thomas says, well, some say you're John the Baptist. He has died already, but maybe he's come back from the dead, and that's who they think you are. Maybe the Apostle Andrew says, well, others in the crowd say that you're Elijah. Maybe even Judas speaks up and says, well, even others from the crowd say you're an ancient prophet. And none of those answers are totally off base. John the Baptist and Jesus were very similar men. The prophet Malachi said that in the Messianic age, an Elijah figure would come. The book of Deuteronomy even spoke of a great prophet like Moses. Each answer had some reasonable basis. But then Jesus turns to the apostles in front of him. He's testing his closest students and he says, but who do you say that I am? Don't rush to Peter's answer just yet. Imagine the eagerness on their faces fade away. Imagine each of them starting to sweat. What if we get the answer wrong? I want each and every person here today to think of your answer. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? If you're not a Christian, but maybe you're here today with us, you might think, well, He's the founder of a religion, but that's all. If you're a Christian and you've been going to this church a long time, you may say, well, it's, he's God's son. Of course he is. If you have a Muslim neighbor, she might say, well, he is a prophet, but he's not anything more than that. If you have Jewish neighbors, they might say, well, unfortunately, he is a false messiah. Who do we say that he is? What has the church claimed about Jesus. This morning we are starting a new series about the Christian season of Advent. Now we normally use the word Advent for technology, right? The advent of the new iPhone, the advent of the airplane, and Advent just means arrival, the coming on the scene of something new, an unveiling of sorts, and that's why this series is called Behold, God Makes All Things New. We're going to see what new things arrived with the arrival of Jesus, because the season of Advent celebrates not only the first arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago, it also anticipates the next arrival of Jesus at the end of all things. So for each of the next four weeks, we're going to look at something new that came with the coming of Christ. And this morning, I want to think about an answer to the question, who is Jesus? And I'm going to spoil the end of the sermon ahead of time. Jesus is our liberator. I want you to think of him this way, not only because the Bible presents him this way, but because slavery is the human condition. There is a revolution a few hundred years ago which was rooted in this quote, man is born free, but yet he is everywhere in chains. Now, from a Christian perspective, that idea is totally backwards. The way we see things is that after the fall, every man and woman is in the chains and slavery of sin. 
And the worst thing, the absolute worst thing that could happen to a slave is that she would be duped into the idea that she's free when she's actually in bondage. This morning's sermon is for anyone who has a sneaking suspicion that they're not truly free, spiritually free to be good and godly. And if you have that suspicion, I'm going to tell you two stories that happen centuries apart and yet both carry the promise of freedom. And we're going to begin with the story of Moses. Moses was born to the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 great houses of Israel, but he wasn't born in his people's true homeland. He was born in the country of Egypt, in the midst of centuries of enslavement of his people. When his mom got pregnant with him, she was terrified, and rightly so. The wicked king of Egypt called Pharaoh had this new nationwide policy regarding Israelite babies. If the baby was a girl, she could live. If the baby was a boy, he would be thrown into the Nile River. This policy was Pharaoh's way of preventing any Israelite army forming within his own country. Now, Pharaoh's daughter was known to have a soft spot for kids, and so Moses' older sister, Miriam, strategically places Moses right where she knew the king's daughter would find him. When Pharaoh's daughter accidentally found Moses, she decides to take him into her family as an act of charity, and so Pharaoh's never going to touch Moses under his own daughter's protection. The baby-killing policy was meant for the masses. One baby wouldn't be a threat to the Egyptian kingdom. But Moses grows up, and he never loses sight of his identity as an Israelite, and one day he sees a fellow Jew with lines down his back, bleeding from a taskmaster whipping him for the umpteenth time. And Moses cannot stand the injustice of it all, and so he kills the Egyptian on the spot. When Pharaoh finds out that Moses has taken the side of the slaves over the masters, Moses knows he has to run from Egypt. So he flees to another land called Midian for safety. And forgetting about his people, Moses meets a young woman, he gets married, he settles down, and he even has a son himself. He thinks, he thinks that he's put the past behind him. But God doesn't put the past behind him. God knows how Israel has been treated for centuries, and he plans to change history. And so God appears to Moses and said that he has heard the cries of Israel. So come, Moses, I'll send you to Pharaoh to bring them out of Egypt. Now Moses starts up a cute little debate with God. Moses is the master of something called whataboutism. All right? I don't know if you've done this. I've done this. God, what about this problem? What about this obstacle? God, have you thought of this hurdle? What about this challenge to your plan? God, have you really thought of everything yet? I'll do it for you. God refutes every single argument Moses makes and tells him to get going already. And finally, Moses submits. He goes all the way down to Egypt and he delivers that famous message to Pharaoh. His words are very famous for a reason. He says to the king of Egypt, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Now the rest of his message is quoted less often. So that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. You've got to hear the whole message. 
Thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. In other words, the one true God says, Pharaoh, free my Israelites so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's response is laughter. Who's the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should heed his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I don't know Yahweh. I will not let Israel go. And so that's when we begin to watch a bizarre ritual unfold. Moses says to Pharaoh, let the Israelites go. Pharaoh says no. God sends a plague on Egypt. Pharaoh begs for mercy. And as soon as God shows mercy to Egypt, Pharaoh goes back on his end of the deal. This happens ten times. God's plagues are destroying the water supply, destroying the crops, the livestock, architecture, even the skin of the Egyptians is diseased. And Pharaoh never lets the Israelites go. Until finally, the most dreadful plague of all is threatened to Pharaoh. Each Egyptian family with the firstborn son will one day wake up to find a corpse where their son had gone to sleep. He's given plenty of advance notice about this, and yet he still doesn't free the slaves. Moses prepares the Israelites for this coming night of judgment. Each Israelite family brings a lamb into their home, and each Israelite father explains what the bread and the lamb mean. The unleavened bread was because the Israelites would have to hurry and get out of Egypt, and the lamb was a sacrifice whose blood protected the sons of Israel so that judgment would pass over them. The Egyptian families would be judged and found wanting. The Israelites' families would be judged, but covered by the sacrifice. Now, God tells them exactly how to eat this meal. They have no time to enjoy it. He says, this is how you shall eat. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it hurriedly. Because if the Egyptians give you just a second, just a moment for an opportunity to leave, you need to be ready to run. That is what happens at the first Passover. Thirteen centuries later, a little boy was born to the tribe of Judah, one of the twelve great houses of Israel, and his unlucky pregnant mother had to travel all the way down from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south because of a decision made by a politician. Sometimes they don't think about pregnant women. Caesar Augustus had called for a census, which meant that every Jew had to go to the town of their birth to register in the empire. Now, of course, the Israelites are not technically in chains, in slavery, but the census was still a tool of economic oppression. The Roman Empire was basically tallying all the Jews to make sure each and every one paid for their heavy taxes. In Bethlehem, for the first two years of Christ's life, this holy family lives there, and technically they have no reason to be afraid. Few people fully realize the impact of this new baby. Unfortunately, three astrologers spoil the big news to Herod. They go to his palace and they ask them, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? They weren't meaning to start any drama, but the phrase really struck a nerve because King Herod believed wholeheartedly that he was the king of the Jews and not anyone else. So when King Herod hears this question, he is frightened. It's usually not good when two people claim one throne. 
So Herod finds out about his competition. This Messiah is born in Jerusalem. Herod makes plans to find this child and kill him. And just to be thorough, he gives orders to his soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or younger. You may have heard of this by another name, the Massacre of the Holy Infants. Now, the last time baby Israelite boys were killed, their families wanted to flee from Egypt. But centuries later in Israel, the Holy Family has to flee to Egypt for safety. The mother of Jesus, whose Hebrew name was Miriam, by the way, ended up saving her son from a baby-killing policy. It wasn't until Jesus was 30 years old that it was time for him to act. He went unseen in the city of Nazareth, just like Moses went unseen in the land of Midian. And like Moses, he begins his ministry with a bang. He starts out performing signs and wonders to prove his power and his identity. The crowds start wondering, who could this Jesus possibly be? And one of their hopes is, man, he's going to kick out the Romans. I mean, we saw what he did with the the crowd of 5,000. He can feed them with just a few loaves and fishes. That's exactly the kind of power we need for an army. At one point, they tried to take Jesus by force to make him king. It's clear that they see Jesus as a rival king to the Romans, to the Herod family, and and ultimately to Caesar himself. They're hoping for a big battle. But they actually get something different. Because Jesus didn't get much attention from Rome until the very end of his life. It was actually his fellow Jews, the Pharisees, who were jealous of him. And Jesus and the Pharisees had this very bizarre ritual that they performed over and over again. Jesus would teach and minister. He would heal the sick and raise the dead. And in the middle of his teaching and ministry, Pharaoh, these, these Pharisees excuse me, would barge in and try to trick him. Try to make him stumble over his words. Make him... Not able to answer their impossible questions, but each time Jesus would stump them with his own genius, they would walk away silenced and disappointed. And then the Pharisees would come back and try it again later. And the Pharisees just refused to stop pestering him him until he was out of the picture. But Jesus knew ahead of time exactly what his enemies' plans were. They wanted to kill him. So, the night before he died... He prepared his disciples. And it just so happened that it was on the night of Passover, 13 centuries to the day after the first Passover. And just like an Israelite father, he explained what each aspect of the meal meant. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to each one of them, and he says, this bread is my body. And this cup of wine is my blood, which will be broken and shed on the cross. That's the final Passover. Flashback to the very first one. The night of judgment finally comes. Egyptian families have not sacrificed lambs for their households. And so each firstborn son of Egypt dies. Pharaoh cannot take it anymore, so he summons Moses in the middle of the night. And he says, rise up 
Go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Just go and worship the Lord already. Take your flocks and your herds, just as you said, and get out of here. The Egyptians are practically throwing their own money at the Israelites, begging them to leave. Please take our gold and silver. We'll pay you to leave. Please never come back. The Israelites are shocked. Their slaveholders are paying them. They hadn't gotten very far out of Egypt when Pharaoh's mind changes again. Never once did Pharaoh ever ask, hey, why have I spent my entire life enslaving human beings? The one question he does ask is, what have I done letting Israel leave my servants? So he gathers up his army, and it's off to the races. Just picture this for a second. A trained fighting force of Egyptians' best soldiers versus men, women, children, and elderly slaves. It should have been a massacre. Flash forward to the first century. The Pharisees have arrested Jesus. They've handed him over to Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate didn't care about this little debate between the Jews about who's the Messiah. That doesn't matter to him. What matters is if Jesus claimed to be king in competition with Caesar. And so Pilate says to Jesus, so, you are a king. And Jesus answers, well, you said it yourself. I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Each one who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate laughs and says, what is truth? Just like Pharaoh who said, who is Yahweh? Pilate wasn't aware that he was talking to the way, the truth, and the life. So Pilate orders his crucifixion until Jesus suffocates and dies on the cross. His last words are, it is finished. Christ left his disciples on earth thinking that all their hopes were lost, that Jesus just walked right into this trap set by his enemies. What was he thinking? They had put all their hopes on him. Thirteen centuries earlier, Moses and the rest of the Israelites were right at the edge of the Red Sea. They turn around and see this dust cloud in the wilderness. They hear horses leading the chariots of Pharaoh's army. They're panicking. The women are holding their children close. They're looking at Moses like he's a failure. He led them right into this trap. They've got the Egyptians on one side of them and the Red Sea on the other. And Moses turns to Israel and says, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians that you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still. He stretches out his staff, and the waters part. Now, sometimes we don't often think about the time from one side of the sea to the other. Right, The seafloor might as well be the realm of the dead. This is where every body thrown overboard a ship has ever sunk. It is a graveyard of bones and seaweed. And if that wasn't scary enough, just as they are halfway through, the Egyptian army pours into the sea behind them. If God didn't do something and do something quick, the Egyptian army is just going to massacre the Israelites on the other side of the sea. What's the point of parting the waters if it lets your enemies through too? 
So you got to picture each and every Israelite climbing up the other side of the sea wall. And finally, the very last Israelite is pulled up, and he turns around to watch what happens next. And we don't know if it was fast, we don't know if it was slow, but one way or the other, the walls close in on the Egyptians. And they're totally defeated. Israel went into the depths of the realm of the dead, but was raised to new life on the other side. And just like Israel, 13 centuries later, Jesus did not stay in the realm of the dead. He rose up and out the other side of death in his resurrection on the third day because he is the new Moses. No, he didn't challenge Caesar on the battlefield. But he sets us all free from our true slave master, Satan. And he liberates us from the bonds of mortality. And his blood, like the blood of the Passover lamb, covers over all of our sins. Our true enemies, our real enemies, our spiritual enemies were defeated on that weekend 2,000 years ago. And our enemies have no hope of reinforcements. In his life, death, and resurrection, we are liberated. I don't know if you know this, but Moses and Jesus actually talked about this whole plan in the middle of his life. One night, Jesus wanted to go pray. So he invites three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to join him in prayer. They walk up Mount Tabor, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Jesus appears with this radiant glorious light all around him and we're told that two men appeared next to him one of them was elijah guess who was the other one moses and we read in the gospels that moses appeared in glory and he and jesus listen to this spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at jerusalem the greek word for departure is exodon which is where we get the word Exodus. The old Moses and the new Moses were up on top of a mountain talking about the new Exodus, Christ's departure, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Who do we say that he is? He is our liberator. He is our freedom fighter. He is the one who takes on our enemies and defeats them for us. An old revolutionary once said that man is born free, and that revolutionary was completely wrong. All of mankind is born in the chains of sin, slavery to Satan and death, and only Christ sets us free. The worst thing that could happen to a slave is to be duped into the idea that she's free when she's actually in bondage. But the best thing that could happen to any slave is to be liberated by Jesus. That's just one of the many things that Jesus made new for us 2,000 years ago. He brought with him a new exodus for everyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from death. Thank you for liberation. Thank you for not letting us lie in our slavery with the shackles of sin around our wrists. 
thank you for being our new Moses, Christ. We thank you for liberating us. We are eternally in debt to you. Lead us to the promised land. We pray this in your name. Amen.